Amen. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There's some notes in the bulletin. If you picked one of those up on the way in, you can track along with the message this morning. We are at the tail end of a series we started back on January 1st. The series is called The Church. And we're just taking the months of January and February to think together about what it means to be part of a church. Who are we as a church? How should a church function? What should it look like? What should your expectations be? What should our aims and our goals be? Back on January 1st, we started with the idea of the church itself, where Jesus promised to build a church or a congregation or an assembly. In the weeks that have followed, we've talked about the church as the body of Christ, the family of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, a holy nation. We're citizens of heaven. Last week, Jake preached. He did a great job. He talked about the church as the flock of God, and God is our shepherd. Jesus is our good shepherd. This morning, we're going to talk about the idea that the church is the field of God, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 3. I want to give you just a little bit of background for 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 3. I don't want to spend too much time on these things, but I do want to lay a foundation that will serve us well this morning. Paul planted this church, the church in Corinth, and he planted this church on his second missionary journey. You can read about this at the very end of Acts 15 and then 16, 17, 18. You read about this journey Paul sets off. One of the things that Paul learned on this trip is a truth that Chris, our missions pastor, tells all of our mission teams. Chris calls it the missionary beatitude, and it goes like this. Blessed are the flexible, for they will not be bent out of shape. When you go on a mission trip, the two things that you have to hold in tension are, number one, inflexibility with the message of the gospel and the truth of the scriptures, and number two, flexibility with who you're with, and when you're there, and how you get there, and if your itinerary means anything or absolutely nothing at all. You've got to be flexible. And Paul learned this on his second missionary journey. He set out thinking he would be with one group of guys, and by the time the team left, he was with a completely different group of guys. Chris will tell you that happens at our church. Many times you plan a trip, and people say, I'm coming, I'm coming, I want to go, I want to go, and things happen, and they can't go, and you pick up other people. So sometimes you have to be flexible. Paul thought that they would travel through the Roman province of Asia, which is what we call Turkey. That was not God's plan for the trip. So God took the itinerary, gently ripped it up, threw it aside, and said, Paul, you're going to Macedonia. Crossed the Aegean Sea, went to Macedonia. And Paul, on this second missionary journey, had lots of different experiences in all the different places that he stopped. So the first place that they stopped was a city called Philippi. And I don't know how you think things went in Philippi. I think it was kind of a mix. Like there were people who put their faith in Jesus and there were amazing things that happened. But also in Philippi, Paul and Silas got arrested and beaten and thrown in to maximum security in the Philippi jail. So that was a mixed bag. They moved down the road and they went to Thessalonica and Berea. And in both places, they had a good reception. People responded to the gospel. They were welcomed in and to a new church. They planted new churches in both of these towns. And especially in Berea, Paul tells us, or actually Luke tells us as he's writing Paul's story, that the Bereans were daily searching the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. They were hungry and eager to study the Bible. So Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, 
Athens. Athens, the intellectual center of the Roman Empire, previously of the Greek Empire. It was a classic university town. And it did not go well for Paul in Athens. They let him preach. And when he got done, they literally laughed him off the platform. And they literally laughed him out of town. Only a few people put their faith in the Lord Jesus. For the most part, the Athenians laughed at Paul and they laughed at the gospel. So Paul went down the road to Corinth. If Athens was the ultimate university town, Corinth was the ultimate party town. In fact, in the ancient world, if you had a child who grew up and became wild, you would say they have Corinthianized. They've gone crazy. They've lost their mind. They're living a life of total debauchery. That's what Corinth was known for. And Paul, again, had a mixed experience in Corinth. There were many people who put their faith in the Lord Jesus, and there were many people who opposed him. They opposed him so strongly that Paul wanted to leave, and the Lord told Paul, I want you to stay right here because I have people in this city. So Paul planted this church on his second missionary journey. This was a church with a lot of problems. A lot of problems. One of the fundamental foundational problems of the church in Corinth, after Paul left and as he wrote them letters and came back to visit, one of the foundational problems was the fact that there was division and a lack of unity in the church. And that division centered on what we would call a cult of celebrity or a cult of personality. And so basically there was an argument at the church in Corinth. Who's the best preacher? And you had one group of people loyal to the Apostle Paul, their planting pastor, their first pastor, and they said, Paul, Paul's our guy. Paul started this church. You'll never do any better than Paul. You had another group of people that said, you know what? Paul's not even the leader of the apostles. How can he be the best preacher? Peter is the leader of the apostles. We like Peter the best. You had another group of people that thought Apollos was the best orator. In fact, When you read some of the things that Paul says, it seems like Paul was actually on Team Apollos. And he says, look, that guy can preach. He can really communicate. He's a skilled speaker. He knows the scriptures. And then you had some people. We don't really know what was going on here. Maybe they were just spiritually arrogant people and they said, we're above and beyond all this petty arguing. We just love Jesus. Or maybe some of them have traveled in their lifetime to Judea and Jerusalem to observe one of the Jewish feasts. And maybe while they were there, this is all within a period of time where some of these people could have heard Jesus preach in person. Jesus never went to Corinth, but some of the Corinthians could have certainly gone to Jerusalem. Maybe they heard Jesus preach. And so you had this argument, this division about who was the greatest preacher. Now today, I just want to make a small point here. You and I don't live in ancient Corinth, do we? We live in the United States of America. A place not unlike ancient Corinth. Corinth exported its immorality and its idolatry all over the Roman Empire. It was famous for it. Just like we are when you travel outside of the United States. You can travel with Chris this summer to Kenya and you will find people who haven't clearly heard the good news of Jesus, but they've seen all of our filth on TV and the internet. That we've exported. So we're not totally unlike the Corinthians, and also like the Corinthians, we are a culture obsessed with celebrity. 
with personalities. And that obsession in our culture has filtered into our churches. It's nothing new. It's something very, very old. But it's the same issue that we struggle with today. Here's one difference between ancient Corinth and present-day Odessa, Texas. You carry around in your pocket a black rectangle that connects you to an unbelievable number of preachers and Bible teachers. In ancient Corinth, if you wanted to hear your favorite guy, you had to get up and go and sit down and listen in a particular place. You don't have to do that anymore, do you? All you have to do is pull out your magic black box, tap on a few apps, scroll through a few menus, and you can find anybody you want who will say anything you want them to say and do it all in the name of Jesus with an amen at the end. The challenge for churches is that people have this sort of access to opinions, beliefs, teachers, preachers, all the rest, and that these phones that we carry around deceive us by scratching a little bit our spiritual itches, but they cannot take the place of the church. I'm not telling you don't listen to good preaching and teaching on your phone. I do, and I hope that you do. I'm just telling you a phone and a voice through your Bluetooth cannot take the place of what God intends to do in and through a local church. But the cult of celebrity was real in Corinth, and it's real in our day. So, 1 Corinthians 3, there's two metaphors. The first is an agricultural metaphor. The second is a construction metaphor. First, he talks about agriculture to help us understand the church. And then he pivots in verse 9 and 10, and he talks about construction, building. God is growing something. God is building something. And we're going to follow Paul's pattern this morning. So the big idea of our passage is simple. The church is the field of God. The field of God. Our focus will be on this agricultural metaphor At the end of our time together, we will dip into this construction metaphor just as Paul does in the second half of 1 Corinthians 3. So take your copy of the Scriptures. Let's read 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. For you're still of the flesh. For for a while there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Father, as your people, we stop this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have, by your grace and your mercy, brought us into your church. And we thank you that you have spoken to us in the scriptures to tell us what your expectations are of 
your church. We're not left to wonder or to guess or to grasp or to invent. Uh, We're simply called to listen and to read and to live out what it is that you've called us to. So, Lord, be with us. Help us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start quickly and talk about agricultural metaphors in the Bible that will help us understand what we're reading in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul's not the first person to use agriculture in explaining God's people and God and the relationship between God and His people. The Hebrew people were agricultural people. That's true in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so, just want to give you a little bit of biblical background that helps us make sense of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 3. Number one, what Bible passages can help us understand what it means to be the field of God? The Old Testament prophets spoke of Israel as God's vine. So you see this in the book of Psalms. You see it in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and a number of other places. The prophets basically said, God is like the farmer and Israel is like the vine. The farmer's growing the vine. God is growing Israel. God planted Israel. He's protected Israel. He's nurtured Israel. He's cared for Israel. And he intends to reap a harvest from these people. That's his aim in creating Israel. It's no surprise in John 15 that Jesus, looking at his disciples, said, I am the vine. Jesus wasn't pulling that out of thin air. He's pulling it out of the Old Testament. He's not just making something new up. He's actually taking something old and explaining how he has fulfilled that agricultural metaphor. What Jesus is saying in John 15, 1 is that he is the true Israel. He is the faithful remnant of one. He's the full and final fulfillment of all of the promises that God had made to these people. That's what he means when he says, I am the vine. And then he says to his disciples, you are the branches. You can be part of this vine. Secondly, Jesus in his teaching used agricultural images to describe unbelieving Israel and the kingdom of God. He used these images two ways, positively and negatively. He would describe Israel in their stubbornness and their sin and their unbelief. And he would say, you know, they're like the path. And the seed falls on the path and it doesn't take root. They're like thorny soil. They're like rocky soil. He would tell parables like the parable of the wicked tenants to explain the unbelief of the Jewish people. But he would also use agricultural metaphors to make a positive point. And he would say things like, the kingdom of God, it's like a seed, a small seed. You plant it in the garden, but it grows into something big in something significant. He would not only talk about the path and the thorny soil and the rocky soil, but he would also talk about good soil that would receive the seed of the gospel and grow up and bear fruit and result in a harvest. So Jesus used these sorts of metaphors all the time. Thirdly, the New Testament describes fruit that God expects from his people. And the classic passage would be Galatians 5, where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. If you've been saved by God, You've been changed by God. God's Spirit lives in you. Corey preached on the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's a construction metaphor. Now we're talking an agricultural metaphor. The Holy Spirit wants to grow fruit in the life of disciples. What kind of fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. God is looking for this kind of fruit 
from his people. So that's some background. Let's spend the rest of our time in 1 Corinthians 3. What does this passage teach us about the church? Let me make one comment before I give you the first truth. A lot of what I'm going to say this morning, I have said to you in previous weeks. I really don't have much new to say to you. And you should expect that because we're listening to the Bible that's inspired by God and it's consistent in its message. It would be an odd thing to jump from passage to passage to passage and for me to say things to you that were completely different each week. Well, the church is supposed to be this or supposed to be that or supposed to be that. That's not what we're doing in this series. We're looking at all these different metaphors and images of the church, and really each week we're saying the same thing over and over and over again, which means we're on the right track in understanding the Scriptures. So, what does this passage teach us about the church? Number one, unrepentant sin stunts spiritual growth. We're talking about agriculture. If you want to stop or prevent or stunt growth, Just continue in unrepentant sin. That's what Paul describes in chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers, I can't address you as spiritual people. I can only address you as people of the flesh. He says to the Corinthians, you are infants in Christ. You are spiritual babies. And you hear that and you think, well, maybe they're not very intelligent. Maybe they're not very smart. Maybe they weren't literate. Maybe they couldn't understand. No, that's not the issue. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food. You weren't ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready. For you're still of the flesh. There is jealousy and strife among you. Which means you're of the flesh and you're behaving in a human way. When you say I follow Paul and another says I follow Apollos, you are being merely human. It's an unrepentant sin in the church in Corinth. And in the paragraph that we just read, he's looking back to chapter 1 and he's talking about divisions, factions, jealousy, envy, strife, anger. And he's saying that all of these things are stunting your spiritual growth. You are not ready for sound doctrine. You are not ready for deep doctrine. You are not ready for solid food. You're just acting like babies. Now in the rest of 1 Corinthians, Paul will talk about some other sin issues, big sin issues. He's going to talk about open, gross immorality that is known in the church and celebrated by the church. People are just applauding at the most wicked things. Paul says that even Gentiles wouldn't do. There is drunkenness at the Lord's Supper in the church in Corinth. They gather together for the Lord's Supper, half the people are drunk. There's lots of big issues. But what Paul's talking about here is not those issues yet. He's looking backwards to this issue of division and factions and favoritism. This is the lesson. It's really simple and it's really important. If you want to stunt spiritual growth, big sins will do it and so will respectable sins. Pick your sin. It doesn't matter. Sin will stunt spiritual growth unrepentant sin of any variety, be it something that you think is horrific that Gentiles would never do, or be it something that seems relatively small and not that big a deal. Unrepentant sin in our lives will stunt spiritual growth. So let's just take a moment and think about this, and let me give you a few examples of what this could look like. We'll start with the most obvious point of application. We'll pull it straight from the text, and we'll talk about the cult of personality or the cult of celebrity. 
when you walk into this room on a Sunday morning. Most Sundays, I preach. Not all Sundays. And if you walk into this room on a Sunday morning and you see that I do not have this microphone on, but I'm holding one of these microphones, and you look around the room and you say, oh my goodness, somebody else has that microphone on. It's Corey, or it's Jake, or it's Chris, or it's Jason, or maybe it's even a non-staff elder like Ron Hinesley who has it on. And you walk in and you say, I wonder if I go to the bathroom, if they'll notice if I don't come back. Or maybe you look up at the stage and you say, oh, that person's singing? That, that person's playing this morning? Eh. What do you expect to get out of that service when you start with that mindset? Paul told the Corinthians, you're acting like babies. That's strong language. I don't want to be unnecessarily confrontational, but that's what Paul says. When you play that game, that cult of personality or cult of celebrity, it will stunt your spiritual growth and you will not be capable of being fed with solid food. I'm guessing you're probably not going to get much out of that service. Unrepentant sin stunts your spiritual growth. Let me give you a second example. Just thinking about that little magic black box you carry around. Let's talk about the life of the mind. What I mean by that is, what do you do with your mind during the week? Because you carry around a box that gives you access to the most unbelievable amounts of information. Previous generations couldn't even fathom the amount of information you carry around in the palm of your hand. I've used my phone for that this last week. I've looked some things up. Very helpful. Very useful. You also know that your phone gives you access not just to information, but to filth. Trash. And you can read the numbers on websites and hits and what people are looking at. It is mind-numbing and it's horrifying. Somebody's looking at that filth. If you're not looking at the filth, you might just be looking at frivolous things. It might not just be openly disgusting, but it might just be something that's nothing. Just wasting your mind. If that's how you've spent your week, allowing your mind because of the magic black box to feast on filth or frivolity, that will stunt your spiritual growth when you come into this room and you will be totally disinterested in what we're singing about and talking about. You cannot flip a switch with the the mind. You cannot live in the life of your mind one way during the week and flip a switch when you come in this room and grow spiritually. That's not how it works. It's impossible. Let's talk about spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. Christians are called to hear from God. We hear from God when we read His Word, reading the Bible. Christians are called to talk to God. We talk to God in prayer. Those are the two fundamental spiritual disciplines Hearing from God and talking to God, experiencing a relationship with God as we hear from Him and we talk to Him. If you are totally negligent and disinterested in spiritual disciplines during the week, 
not hearing from God, not talking to God. Again, that's not a, a switch you can flip when you walk in this room. And you'll probably find yourself saying, eh, it's kind of a boring sermon. Eh, it was not my favorite songs this week. Eh, that, that guy talked, that lady sang, that person played. Eh, you know, it, you know, not the best. Unrepentant sin stunts spiritual growth. One more example, let's just talk human relationships. Human relationships. Paul talks in verse 3 about division and jealousy and strife. Surely those aren't issues for churches in Odessa, Texas, are they? Surely those aren't issues for any of us, are they? Is it possible that there are people in this room right now or people who sat in this room at 8.30? People you sat in a room with during the Sunday school hour and you've spent the last week gossiping about them, slandering them? There's strife, there's hostility, there's division. And then you expect to grow spiritually by just being here at church. Paul's saying that's not how it works. To the Corinthians, you can't do that. You can't have this festering, unrepentant sin in your life and expect to grow. You're acting in a human way. You're acting in a fleshly way. You're acting like infants. Unrepentant sin will stunt your spiritual growth. Big sins or respectable sins, it doesn't matter. Sin will stunt your spiritual growth. So what we're called to do is repent. Some 500 years ago, a man named Martin Luther nailed 95 statements on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. The very first statement, the very first thesis says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther was pushing back against a system that said repentance is just a thing that you do. It's a magical formula you follow. You give enough money, you say the right prayer, you light the right candle, you stay on your knees long enough, and then you sort of get back to good. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That's not what repentance is. It's a total reorientation of your life. The entire life of the Christian is to be one of repentance. We're constantly trusting in Jesus in repenting our sin. Now, Luther would be the very first person to tell you that when you repent of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be justified. That is, you will be declared righteous. And this great mysterious exchange takes place where your sin is counted as paid for at the cross and the righteousness of Jesus is credited to your account. What a beautiful, glorious exchange. He takes our sin, we get His righteousness. Justified. Declared righteous from nothing that we've done, only because of what Christ has done. And it's unchanging, and God doesn't take justification back. When He justifies a sinner, they're justified forever. Luther would also remind you that when you've been justified, you've been reconciled to God, and you've been brought back into a relationship with Him. And in that relationship, a living, real relationship with the living and real God, you don't repent of your sin over and over and over again because every time you sin, you've lost your salvation. That's what Luther's rejecting. Luther says you keep repenting of sin because you actually have it. Because you've truly been justified and you've been reconciled to God. So the entirety of your life is now marked by repentance. A lack of repentance, unrepentant sin, will stunt your spiritual growth. 
Truth number two. Ultimately, God is responsible for the growth of his church. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. That's not a complicated two verses, is it? Paul says, I played a role. I planted. And Apollos played a role. He watered. But God was the one who gave the growth. Paul couldn't do it, and Apollos couldn't do it, and Peter couldn't do it. I can't do it. Our elders can't do it. Your Sunday school teacher can't do it. Your grandma can't do it. If any of us could do it, we would. God gives a growth. Only God can give spiritual growth. God is responsible for the growth of His church. This is something we've talked about. And I promise you, in a couple weeks we'll be on to a new series. But this is something we got to drill down and we got to understand as a church family. Every church, every church must and will answer this question. Every church will answer this question. Will numerical growth be the most important thing at your church? Every church has to answer that question. There are plenty of churches in the United States, in the Bible Belt, that answer that question with a resounding yes. And what they're saying is, yes, we will do anything and everything with no constraints to get more people in the room and to be bigger and to have a bigger budget and a bigger building and everything's bigger. That's the American way. There are a decent number of churches in the United States that will answer that yes intentionally, actively. Some of them will answer it yes just because they're being pulled along by the currents of our culture and they never give it any thought. You don't give it any thought, your answer will be yes. You will be swept along with what is called church growth today. There's a number of churches that have answered that question no, but can I let you in on a secret for a lot of them? A lot of churches in the United States in the Bible Belt have said, no, we will not do anything and everything to achieve numerical growth. But if you talk to them in a moment of honesty, they wish that they had. Because they're angry and they're bitter and they're frustrated about how big their church is. And they look at other churches and they say, look at all the people over there. Look at all the building over there. Look at all the budget over there. I wish we were big like that. And as that resentment and bitterness begins to fester, do you know what sort of things they say? They start saying things like this. The younger generation today is just terrible. They're the worst. Back in my day, in the good old days, everyone went to church. All the churches were full. Revival services were overflowing. Everything was better. Everything was great. It's this younger generation. They're worthless. Well, you raised them. For one thing. For another thing, that sort of complaining and whining reveals a heart that is secretly envious of what another church has. And many of those churches who have that have made the decision we will accept unbiblical pragmatism in the name of growing numerically. And you say, no, we don't want that. But then they do it and they get it and many people say, oh, I kind of wish we had it. 
It's not our responsibility to grow the church. It's not our job. Matthew 16, week one in this series, Jesus said to the disciples that he would build his church. He intended to use Peter and the twelve and me and you, but he's the one who will do the building. If you were here last week, you heard Jake preach. He did a great job. One of the things he said, I hope you didn't miss it, it was such an important point. He talked about hearing the voice of the shepherd. We're the flock. We want to hear the voice of the shepherd. You understand that hearing the voice of the shepherd is not a, it's not a subjective thing. It's not like you go home, you close the door, turn off the lights, get in your room, plug your ears. There's a football player right now who's doing a, what a, a darkness retreat, getting away, and he's going to listen to something in his head or drugs or I don't know what. Some people think that's what hearing from God is like. you got to go home, you got to get away, shut it all out, and you just get real still and real quiet, and then you're going to hear something in your head, and that's going to be God. That's not how we hear the voice of the shepherd. The way you hear the voice of the shepherd is you come to church, or you go home and you open this book. You read it. That's the voice of the shepherd. Nothing subjective to it. It's completely objective and outside of us. You just open this book and you read the voice of the shepherd. Now here's what Jake warned us about last week. It's a valuable warning. He said, beware and be aware that there are people in our country whose intention is to modify the voice of the shepherd just enough so that you don't notice it's been modified, and so that the world likes what it hears. Be very careful. And Jake rightly told us that this was dangerous and deadly, and I would add that it's doubly foolish. Doubly foolish. It's foolish, number one, because when shepherds, begin to modify the voice of the shepherd, under shepherds, modifying the voice of the good shepherd, what happens is the sheep can't tell the shepherd's voice from the thieves and the robbers and all the rest. And it just becomes completely confusing. And people will say to me or to you, they'll say, I watched this thing, it was very biblical. And I'll think to myself, no, it's not. You can't, you can't even hear the voice of the shepherd. You're confused. Do the sheep get confused when they hear something other than the voice of the shepherd? So it's dangerous for the sheep. It's also a fool's errand. Because it rests on the premise that there are lost sheep out there looking for the shepherd. The Bible says there are exactly zero lost sheep looking for the shepherd. Everything Jesus says about sheep and shepherd, you understand it's the shepherd who goes to find the sheep. It's not the lost sheep who go to find the shepherd. They're not looking for the shepherd. You can't make the shepherd's voice cool enough to be appealing to them. They don't want to hear it, period. Full stop. That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. Lost sheep. We're not looking for the shepherd. We're looking for anyone or anything other than the shepherd. 
Paul says this in Romans 3, and he's quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. He says, you know what? There is no one righteous, no, not one, no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. Left to ourselves, we are not seeking God. We're not seeking the shepherd. It's not that we just need church to be a little bit cooler or the boring, dusty Bible to be made a little more exciting, and then that's what we're looking for. No, we're not looking for any of that left to ourselves. We're just following the thieves and the robbers. Put the Romans 3 verse up one more time for me. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. As a church, our highest aim is not numerical growth. We're not opposed to numerical growth. It is not our highest aim. It is not our highest aim. I say that to you as someone who spent an awful lot of time going to seminary and I have a fancy piece of paper on my wall is a terminal degree in evangelism and church growth. It's the name of my degree. And I'm telling you, that's not our highest aim. Numerical growth in this room on a Sunday morning is not our highest aim. Our highest aim is reflected in our vision statement. We believe that God is with us for His glory. We want God to be glorified first. Behind that and underneath that, our desire as a church is that we would be faithful. That was week one, Matthew 16. The church is called to be faithful and that we would be healthy. Church is the body of Christ. We've talked about this. Jesus wants His body to be healthy. He's concerned with the health of of his body, not the unconditional, unrestrained growth of his body, but the health of his body. God gives the growth. Number three, believers are God's field and God's fellow workers. What then is Apollos? What is Paul's servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. God gives the growth. You and I are not passive. Church is not passive. Instead, we're called to plant gospel seeds and water gospel seeds. That's our job. Not to come up with crazy ideas to get more people in the room. Plant gospel seeds, water gospel seeds. Just keep doing it and pray that God would give growth. Chris mentioned the gospel project earlier. Most, but not all of our Sunday school classes use the gospel project in Sunday morning Bible study. Last week we looked at Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8 is a story of... Nehemiah and Ezra teaming up to plan a worship service. Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem to build a wall. Ezra came back to preach and to teach the law. They planned a worship service in Jerusalem. And it's a remarkable service. You can read it in Nehemiah 8. It says, the people gathered together as one man. Not as a group saying, I really want to hear from Nehemiah. No, we really want to hear from Ezra. They gathered together as one, unified. And what they asked of those men is, we want to hear from the book of the law. 
We don't really care what Ezra has to say. We don't really care what Nehemiah has to say or what Landon or Corey or Jake or Chris or Jason or Ron or Sunday school teacher, anybody else has to say. We just want to hear what the book says. We just want to talk about the book. They read the book. They stood up. They read the book. And there were men there who gave the sense of it. That means they explained it. Not trying to be cute. Not trying to be funny. Not trying to entertain. Just giving the sense of what the book says. And the people were cut to the heart. And they wept over their sin. And they were broken over their sin. They were convicted of their sin. And Nehemiah and Ezra told them, today's not a day for weeping. Today's a day for celebrating the joy of the Lord ought to be your strength. Now, this is what I want to point out to you. In this amazing chapter, Nehemiah 8, where this revival breaks out. It's not the first time that Ezra had preached in Jerusalem. Ezra had been in Jerusalem for 14 years. What was he doing for 14 years? Well, Nehemiah was building a wall physically, and Ezra was building a wall spiritually. Sunday school, big church, VBS, men's Bible study, women's Bible study, personal devotions, gospel conversations at lunch. He's laying bricks on a wall one at a time. When you're building a wall, you can't worry about the top course of bricks. You just got to lay the next brick down at the bottom. You got to work your way up. And Ezra did that for 14 years before this amazing revival broke out in Jerusalem. Just one brick after brick after brick after brick. That's the construction metaphor. And that's what Paul starts to talk about in the backside of 1 Corinthians 3. The agricultural metaphor is not all that different. 14 years planting seeds. Put a seed in the ground. Water the seed. Make sure it has light. Make sure the drainage is good. Till the soil up. When there's a little bit of growth, you've got to prune it. You've got to help it. You've got to fertilize it. You plant gospel seeds. You water gospel seeds. And in all of it, you trust that God is the one who gives the growth. You and I are not passive in this. We are called to lay one brick at a time, straight and square. You and I are called to plant gospel seeds and to water them and to trust that God is the one who gives growth. 